Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to the Leading Voices in Real Estate podcast. Today's interview is with Ken Woolley, who's the founder and now executive chairman of Extra Space Management, which is the country's second largest self-storage company. Ken has been involved in the self-storage business since 1977 and is one of the pioneers and innovators in this part of the real estate business. Ken is an insatiable entrepreneur, having partnered or started numerous other businesses, including apartment companies based in Las Vegas and another in New York, several airlines, and other retail electronics, food manufacturing, and natural resources businesses, in addition to self-storage. Hopefully our conversation taps at least a little bit into Ken's secret sauce on how he gets all of this done and has accomplished so much in such a wide variety of businesses and civic involvements. One disclosure, my wife Diane Olmsted is on Ken's board at Extra Space and years ago was the consultant who helped Extra Space raise its first capital from institutional investors. So I've had the pleasure of knowing Ken for a long while and observe his great work in the industry. Please enjoy today's interview, and if you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. Pass this on to your friends, and feel free to contact me at matt at with comments and ideas for the podcast. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Ken Woolley, I am so pleased to have you as my guest today on Leading Voices in Real Estate. Um, for our listeners who don't know, Ken is the chairman and founder of Extra Space Storage, the second largest self-storage REIT in the country. You formed the company in 1977. You went public in 2004, and you're now the second largest self-storage company and the second largest self-storage REIT. And how, how many how many properties do you have, and what's the total market cap, just to, for perspective? Well, we have we're operating about 1,500 properties, of which we own approximately 900, and our our equity market cap is about 11 and a half billion. Uh, gross market cap about sixteen and a half billion. Got it. Dollars. So, Ken, you and I have known each other for a long while. I'm excited to have you on the podcast, and wanted you to be a guest since we started this. Not just because of your work at Extra Space, and not just to talk about the self storage business, but because you're a serial entrepreneur, both inside and outside of real estate, and you're a very creative and diverse thinker and I know our conversation today will touch on all of those subjects. So the place to start for me is always at the beginning. Talk a little bit about your roots and your influences and in growing up. Well, I grew up in New York and California. My teenage years were in Northern California in the Bay Area. And uh, early on, I actually worked for, as a kid, working for an apartment developer in Menlo Park, helping to paint apartments and renovate them. And uh, I studied physics as an undergraduate. I ended up with an MBA and PhD in business from Stanford. While I was at uh, the Stanford Graduate School of Business, I was interested in real estate, but not very many students were. So I ended up at Foothill Junior College taking real estate classes to obtain a California real estate broker's license. During my years at Stanford, I worked for a, the same developer who was building self-storage in 1970 in uh, San Carlos, California. And I helped him build it as sort of an intern. And I saw the returns and I saw the idea and it intrigued me. And then when I worked in New York uh, and Boston, 
I noticed there was no self-storage in the East. And I thought, wow, that's, that's an interesting thing. And there must be a demand for it there. So that led me as a curious, interested person, but not one that was doing anything about it. Hey, go back and put some time frames on this so that I understand when. I finished my MBA in 1971, and I finished my PhD in 1972, and my PhD was in corporate strategy, and I moved to Boston. And it was during the MBA and the PhD that you also went to Foothill College to get your real estate license? I was doing that at the same time. (laughs) They sound like concurrent, very different directions, but I'll, I'll take it. And so then you went to Boston, and what took you to Boston? I worked for the Boston Consulting Group in Boston doing strategy consulting for large U.S. companies. Nothing related to real estate. But soon, a few years, two years later, I was hired away by a family-controlled company in Wyoming, in Cody, a, company, a family that was sort of a family office, and they owned various businesses, including a, a mid-sized oil business. And I became a sort of a senior executive in a family office. And I suggested that we get into self-storage. And they said, well, you've been a consultant. Why don't you do a go, go do a study of the business? So I did. And I went to Los Angeles in early 1974 and visited every self-storage in the greater Los Angeles metro area. There were exactly 26 of them, and uh, including the very first public storage under construction in Alhambra. And I came back and did a report and thought this was a growing industry. There was lots of opportunity for growth. It was profitable and we ought to get into it. That was January of 1974. Unfortunately, my boss said, well, we we can't pursue that right now because I need you to run a manufacturing business for me. And so I did that for another couple of years. And then I still wanted to do self-storage, so I convinced my boss that we do one, and we built it in Billings, Montana, which was the closest town of any size to Cody, Wyoming. Cody had a population of 5,000. Billings had a population of 100,000. So that was the first extra space storage completed in 1977 with a partnership between me and my boss. The dynamics in Billings would be a little different than the dynamics in Los Angeles, like no lack of space in the outlying areas. Yeah, there was, there was no lack of space, but it was interesting, at least up in about six months, and it was very profitable and led me to the idea that this was going to be a good business. We didn't call it extra space. We called it secure it mini storage. Later during the 80s, the idea became self-storage, and that's what we call it today. It's funny. I, I imagine um, also the names of companies when you were called it secure at mini storage. If you walk, go around the country and just drive by these everywhere, you see public storage, you see extra space, and then you see these silly names because they're probably one, two, three, four offs. That's right. Extra space came about from a brainstorming session with a couple of friends in 1979 or 78, I think, where we wanted to change it and have a good name, a catchy name. And, and one of my friends, a man named Neil Larson, uh, came up with the name. So we coined it. So at that point, was this your company or was this still within that family office? No, what happened was the family office, I decided to leave working for them and I, and I wanted to do other things and I moved to Utah. Uh, and in order to sustain myself, I became a professor of 
business strategy at Brigham Young University in their MBA program. And at the same time, started Extra Space Storage mm-hmm. in January of 1979. Well, I didn't have a financial backer. And my former employer approached me after I left them and said, well, we'll be your financial backer. So they came in as a partner, a kind of a silent financial partner. I became the do-it partner. And we started developing properties. Mm-hmm. And the first one was in Orem, Utah, 1979. But the second one was in San Jose, California, 1980. And the third one was in the L.A. area in Baldwin Park. And the fourth one was in Florida. I was trying to figure out where to do it and what was the best place. So I I figured I'd go to growing places with population. It's interesting. Business wisdom might suggest, you know, focus in on the market, do it well, and expand from there. And you have efficiencies of scale and all that. But you did one in each of those places to see what might work. And I probably didn't have a very good long-term strategy. I didn't think it through very well. But, you know, sometimes when you're an entrepreneur, you don't have a good long-term strategy. You're just sort of trying to survive. Because interest rates during that period went to 20%. It was a very difficult thing to finance them after we kind of ran out of money. So we did like four projects and then stopped. But they leased up and they did very well. And they gave good returns. Okay. So along the way, I met a man named Wayne Hughes, who was the founder of Public Storage. And Public Storage lent me $9 million on two projects as a takeout loan at 14% interest fixed, plus a 40% equity participation to make the loan. That's what interest rates were like in 1981. And guess what? It cash flowed. It was not only that, but it was effectively 100% loan to cost, and it cash flowed the 14%, no problem. There's a big statement there right. in terms of this is a business. My first home loan was in that year or the year after. It was 13 and 3 eighths, and I got the best deal I could, and I was so tickled pink that I had been so smart at getting that deal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We all remember that. And it, it doesn't. those of us who went through that period always know that these low interest rates may not stay here forever. Let's go back just for a minute because it's interesting. So Wayne Hughes, who's the founder and I guess chairman, I don't know if he's still CEO of Public Storage, your biggest competitor now, lent you your first dollars to do your first deals. No, he he became a takeout loan. Okay, takeout loan for those transactions. Right, right. For two of those properties, they were the ones in, actually three of them. They were in the, the Florida one and the two in California. And so uh, I became a friend with Wayne at the time. And and during the early 80s, after that, it was very difficult to develop storage. So I tended not to do any more development. And I went to work for public storage as an acquisitions guy. And uh, for for a year in 1982, I was the head of acquisitions for public storage. And we bought that year about $70 million worth of properties including the properties owned by my friend from Menlo Park, who had built five of them in the Bay Area, which we acquired in 1982. For public storage. And this is, public storage is not a REIT back then. This is well before that era for them too. No, the REIT public storage was founded in 1980. It was called storage. It was called storage equities. It was underwritten by Merrill Lynch. 
it was its its initial public offering was thirty million dollars, and it was a outside managed REIT. And Public Storage Inc. was a separate GP manager of the REIT. But in the meantime, Public Storage in those days was doing a lot of limited partnership offerings, and most of the capital and most of the deals they were doing were in fact uh, done through their partnerships. Subsequent to that, in the late 80s and early 90s, those were all eventually merged into the REIT that went public in 1980 and is now called public storage instead of storage equities. Got it. So they were an early generation REIT, not the mid-90s generation. They went public in 1980. The REIT that is today public storage. Okay. So you work for them, and then how did you get well, back to your own company? Wayne wanted me to work full-time and have a senior executive position. I decided I wanted to be a developer, and he said, okay, then you be a developer, and we'll help you. So during the 80s, uh, I just continued and started developing projects in in Boston area and in uh, Chicago area and Southern California, those three markets, and I would build and sell them to public storage. So Extra Space as a company was more of a development and, you know, seller of self-storage, not really a, we managed some and, and built some and managed them, but we didn't keep them very long. And when did that start to change and you started to hold on to your own companies and manage them? And Much later. What happened was Many of us in real estate remember a very bad real estate recession from 89 to about 93. So we couldn't really develop much between 90 and 93. And, and I stopped selling things to public stores because they didn't have any money either. And so I ended up with 15 projects and bought some more. And by 1994, I owned about 30 projects. And a company called Storage USA had gone public that year. And they approached me, and I sold most of what I had to Storage USA in 1994. Uh-huh. And then I was down to very little, you know, this is a small company, and we were managing a few properties. And then started developing again. And then by 1998, I had a revelation, so to speak. I had done some vetting to teach a class at Brigham Young University in corporate strategy and thought to myself, I don't have a very good corporate strategy. I need to grow extra space into a big company and hold on to the properties and build a real business. At that time, we owned 12 properties. And so I knew that I needed several things to do that. Number one, I needed money. Number two, I needed a a good management team. And number three, I felt I needed a partner who could help me. So I, I hired a company called Arthur Anderson Real Estate Capital Markets Group a woman named Diane Olmstead, and she went out with her team and introduced me to 21 different capital partners. Finally, we closed on a deal. I don't know. They, they committed about $150 million with prudential real estate investors to do joint venture development and acquisition. I also hired a new CFO. I found a partner named Spencer Kirk. We then hired a, a whole management team and went with a goal of really creating a major company. And that really is the beginning of what I would call the modern extra space. And, and so let's review this for a sec, because it's interesting. In those 20 years, though, you'd probably developed yourself and or purchased 
50, 60, 70 properties, maybe all over the country. That's correct. Somewhere around probably 70 properties. So you've done 70 deals now, but you're sitting there with six or eight properties at the point at which you have this revelation while teaching a class at BYU to say, I'm going to really build a company. It's exactly what happened. And at that point, you'd done all this business. You raised capital and disclosure to our listeners. Uh, this wonderful person at Arthur Anderson, Diane Olmsted, is my wife. So everyone around the country should be cheering <laughs> and applauding here. You, you also knew that you needed a business partner and maybe that business partner would approach the business in a different way or complement right. your skill sets. So talk about finding Spencer and how that worked and what you were looking for different than what you knew you were. Spencer Kirk became my partner. Spencer Kirk is 15 years younger. He was at this point in his early 30s or mid-30s. He had already built a very successful high-tech company, which he had taken com- public and which he had uh, then sold and he retired at age 35. And I, I was on his board of directors. And I watched what an excellent executive he was. And I knew he could run a business really well. And so I approached him and I said uh-huh. to him, and he'll, he'll quote this, you don't know beans about real estate, but I don't know beans about building a company and building a team and building a big business. Why don't we team up together and do storage? And his first response was, I don't want to do storage. It's a CD business. (laughs) And I said, no, Spence, that's not what it is. Come and look at some of the projects we're developing. And I brought him to Boston. We were doing three-story, beautiful architect buildings. And I brought him to LA and he saw the, 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 really the, the industry much as it is today. Now, by this time we were building multi-story climate control properties and he saw a different image. And so he signed up and became my partner. What did he bring to the table? What were those skills about building a company that really complemented you? And how, over the years as you built the company, did he apply his talents and how did you apply your talents? Well, Spencer is a consummate manager. He manages all the functions of a business. He, he recognizes the need to have good human resources, good marketing, good finance, good, good operations, good IT, uh, you know, all the internal controls. And I'm a a deal maker by nature. And he was not very good at that. And I was not Mm -hmm. very good at the other. So we just worked together at it and he put in capital that helped because he had made some money and, uh, we just worked together. It's interesting, if you'd had the vision of doing deals, kind of growing slowly and doing deals, it probably would not have captivated his imagination. But the ambition that you had was a much broader one that would then appeal to him. Right. We said, okay, we want to build a company with a billion dollars of assets right away. And we want to get to a billion dollars in five years. You know, that was 1998. And then in 2003, five years later, we were not at a billion dollars, but we were like five or 600 million. And, you know, we had a goal and we talked about uh-huh. the goal and we evangelized the goal with our team and we built a good set of people. And, and really, by the time we got to the end of 2003, we were sort of running out of joint venture capital and we needed a bigger source of capital. And that led us to Wall Street in, in November of 2003. 
Spencer and I were in Wall Street at Wall Street look, we're talking with UBS Securities, and they suggested, why don't you think about going public? And he had had the experience of being a public CEO in the high tech world, and he didn't. He he'd been to that barbecue, and he didn't like the sauce. <laughs> so he goes, I don't know if I want to do that. And you want to do that, Ken? And we thought about it, and talked about it, and finally I said, okay, let's give it a try. Of course, that meant unwinding and simplifying a whole series of joint ventures and partnerships that we had created over the years, including a big one with Prudential Real Estate. Right. But, but in the, but we were able to do it. And finally in the summer of 2004 in August, we went public, we raised 290 million. We bought out many of the joint venture partnerships uh, from Prudential, not everything, but part of it. We consolidated everything in one simple structure, and uh, we had a market cap of probably seven hundred million or something in that range. Not quite your billion, but you were going to get there soon. Well, so then, the, as I mentioned in nineteen ninety four, ten years earlier, I had sold much of Extra Space to a company called Storage USA, which is a very rapidly growing company during the nineties, mm-hmm. and was purchased by GE Capital Real Estate in the year two thousand. And, and I knew that GE wasn't doing very well with their storage yep. business. They were struggling. And I knew the head of their real estate division, and I had talked to him several times about Storage USA. So as soon as we went public, I went and talked to him and said, we'd like to buy Storage USA. And he said, well, let's talk about it. And we had an initial discussion about maybe doing a joint venture or letting us run it or something because it wasn't doing well. That led to their decision, GE's decision, mm-hmm to put it on the market and sell it. And uh, they hired an investment banker and several of us were interested in making offers. They sort of put a private bid out and our, we, we made a bid and public storage made a bid and SureGuard or another public company made a bid and you stored a, another company made a bid. And I really wanted to buy it because I knew it would really help us a lot, but it was two point, it was roughly 2.3 billion. Right. And we didn't have 2.3 billion when we were only 700 million market cap. So we went to Prudential and talked to them about it. And after we made the presentation, Prudential made a commitment in one day to invest $1.8 billion as a partnership with us to against the uh, approximate purchase price of 2.3 billion. And they, they committed 1.5 billion of equity mm-hmm. and 300 million of debt which was from that, from my perspective, that was the largest deal I'd ever done at that point. So the Prudential senior officer and I went to talk to GE and uh, after a lot of negotiating, we ended up making a deal. Mm -hmm. One of the funny things that came out of that was, this would interest your listeners, we had the meeting with the GE guy and he said, well, who's going to sign the contract? And we said, well, extra space and Prudential. And he says, well, what entity at Prudential? Because he was concerned with whether the contract would be strong enough, you know, financially. And finally, the Prudential guy says to him, the Prudential Insurance Company of America will sign the contract. So he said, oh, okay. Because he was afraid that maybe it wouldn't be really backed by Prudential. Even though the funds Prudential invested were, in fact, funds that they manage in, in their pension management business, not directly the insurance company's money. So that deal occurred and was was closed in early July 2005. 
and we went from owning 150 properties to owning and running about 600 properties. So we added 450 to the portfolio in one transaction. And that was a big jump for us because, you know, we only had a management expertise for 150, not 600. And we had to merge the two companies and work together, which took a lot of effort over the next couple of years to get everybody kind of working along the same, you know, in the same direction. I bet that's the case. And all, all not all of a sudden, but then Spencer Kirk's experience in running, operating, thinking through day-to-day operations and business, then well, that comes you to the Well, you would have thought it would, but unfortunately, both Spencer and I are Mormons. And uh, one week after we decided to go public, the Mormon church asked Spencer to leave the business and go on a three-year voluntary mission for the church. And so he left the company in June of 2004 and didn't come back until July of 2007. So going public and buying Storage USA, he wasn't involved, really. <laughs> so, so he didn't help me much. So fortunately, we had a senior officer from Storage USA, a man named Carl Hawes, who was just a wonderful operator. And with his help and with the senior people at Extra Space, we did a pretty good job of integrating the company. I personally went to every one of the 600 properties in 39 states, and I had personal meetings, town hall meetings, with every single employee, all 3,000 of them, in, in markets everywhere in the country to get to know them, to try and bring people together on the same philosophy and that sort of thing. Talk about how that did come together, and I'm thinking back to Spencer's image when he told you what he thought self-storage was, and you said, no, no, it's a whole different right. business from the guy with the junkyard dog. What was that constant philosophy? What was that training? What was that? What did that one company have to become to get there? Well, we had to become several things. First of all, we needed to have the employees be motivated and happy and find our company to be a great place to work. So we spent a lot of time working with employees, employee benefits, employee motivation. And I think that that has paid huge dividends for us. Second, all of, we've always had a philosophy of mm-hmm. being fair to any, any, in any business transaction. So it was sort of like we wanted to have everything be win-win. And we, we really internalized the idea that when you have a contract or a business relationship, you're always fair to the other guy and don't try and take advantage of them. And that has really worked well for us in all of our relationships with subcontractors and vendors and and also with people we buy properties from. And now we're in the management business and it's very important in our management business. Management business, meaning you're doing third-party manager for other owners of self-storage. Right, in 2008, we decided to launch a big effort to manage properties for other companies. Today we have not including our Prudential joint venture, which is still substantial. We have over 400 properties that we manage for over 100 different owners. Uh, And we manage under the name Extra Space. When people come and rent, they have no idea that the property is either owned by us or, or somebody else. Since that acquisition in 2005, and as the company has now grown from, at that point, 600 properties to now around 1,500, um, what's become apparent 
and over the last 10 years is the internet has supplanted all other forms of advertising so that the business has become much more focused on internet advertising. And today, something like 80% of all of our tenants have touched the internet in some form or fashion during their renting process. Now, it wasn't true 10 years ago, but it is true today mm-hmm. that your dominance and your ability to to market through the internet and to be first uh, in, on, on a Google search is very critical to the success of the business. So it gives us a natural advantage that we didn't used to have 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And, and I'm imagining... There's a warehouse somewhere, and you have rows and rows of people helping you get those Google search optimization. Is is that is that a true fantasy for your business? Is there a like a huge shop of folks playing those playing with that stuff? Not a huge huge shop, but we do have about forty two people in internet marketing in the company. We also have a call center of over a hundred people taking telephone calls. And, and what's really interesting is we've, the number of telephone calls and then a number of people accessing our call center has actually been increasing, not decreasing. Because with the use of mobile phones rather than desktop computers, people are clicking on, after they look at the website, they're clicking on the little button that says call. So then they call us. Whereas before they would kind of, get a reservation on the website. Now they don't as much. It's really to the use of more than, I think last year the searches went from more than 50% on mobile phones. I bet that's the case. I know I know. I, I haven't done self-storage for a while, but uh, it's all on the phone because you're going and you're looking for it. Right. And, and the reality is we're renting and re-renting between 50 and 60,000 units every month. And that's a lot of transactions. And it's, you know, 80% of that, the cell phone has something to do with it. Right. So you talk about secret sauce with employees, with being fair, with technology. You said the Internet, but I'll broaden it to technology. Are there other foundations on which your size and scale matters? Yes, I would say it's also sophistication in pricing. The Our business is, unlike the apartment business, which I'm also familiar with, our tenants don't talk to each other. They don't know. It, it's like when you go to a hotel, you don't know what the man next door to you or the woman is paying for their hotel room. Mm-hmm. And it's the same in the storage business. You don't know what the next guy's paying. So we are able right. to differentiate our pricing model depending on time of the day, time of the week. Uh, how they access us, whether they go to the store directly, whether they do it on the phone, whether they do it on the computer, um, and offer different uh, combinations of price and promotion to different customers depending on certain de- characteristics of that customer. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's that kind of work has, has enhanced us and, and is, mm-hmm. is part of the reason that we are outperforming the storage business over many, many years in revenue growth. And is and is that because you're out, able to outperform because much of the competition is mom and pops? Or do you outperform the other big guys through some secret sauce as well? Well, we, we, we outperform the mom and pops more, but we've also outperformed over the last 10 years, 
almost every quarter on same store revenue growth and same store net operating income growth. And over a long period of time, we're talking about a difference between over like 12 years, uh-huh. we've had an NOI growth of around five and a half percent, you know, compounded. And our competitors are more around the three, three and a half percent. So it's a significant delta. And do you attribute much, much all of that to technology? I would contribute to technology and marketing sophistication and pricing sophistication, which is all related to technology, but it's not the technology itself. It's the, it's the how you use it. A data point that helps me think about it. What's the average stay? Stay is probably not the right word, but what's the average rental period? The average stay is 13, the average stay is 13 months. So if you look at, if you look at, in the past year, everybody who rented with us and moved out and you averaged how long they had been there, it was 13 months. But what happens is you have a lot of people who stay a long time so that if you look at the rent roll of a storage facility that might be five years old or older, you would find that you have, you would find that your average tenancy might be 24 or 30 months in, in terms of the age of the tenancy in the building. So it's a different number. And I wonder how many people leave for a better deal somewhere else. It's kind of a pain in the neck, unless you're storing a, a nice car. If you're storing a lot of stuff, that's got to be pretty sticky unless people like moving that stuff. Well, that's exactly right, Matt. Almost nobody leaves to go to another place. Once you got them, they're there. They'll leave primarily because of a circumstance that causes them to need to move, like they need to move out and get rid of the junk because they're moving someplace or they don't need the storage anymore or, or something. But it's usually not caused by a change to somebody else's property. Almost never. And I keep reading about disruption in this business and the risk of disruption and maybe disruption to the traditional operator like you who has 1,500 properties. What's, what, what's that all about? It's all about people in the technology world thinking that they can find a better mousetrap that nobody has yet. So there, mm-hmm. there are companies that are trying Airbnb for storage. It's not working very well. And there's also companies that are doing ballet storage where people come and pick your stuff up. It's, it's a logistics business. It's, it kind of works in very, very high rent places like New York and San Francisco, but nowhere else that we can see. So right mm-hmm. now there's not a lot of disruption going on. Maybe we're just not seeing it, but we try and evaluate everything and we haven't seen it. The other, well, the other disruption I would say is happening is there are companies, and we're looking at it, which are automating the storage properties so that there's no manager there and doing everything with computers and automated systems for the locks and, and security and all that sort of thing. And that is disruptive and that will probably happen over time. And you'll move in that direction? Well, as, as we can, are certain that we can make it work. Uh-huh. <laughs> we're, we're experimenting with it, but you know, it's not clear. It's not clear that how, how economic it is and whether you lose the advantage of having a person there and how important the person is and whether, you know, you can really replace people. Right. And it's interesting in the real estate business, we, people talk about barriers to entry all the time. And I have more casual conversations with people who want to get into the self storage business, maybe, it's the dumb tax, I'm not sure, but it's, well, that looks cool. It's growing. It's easier to do than apartment development. And the barriers to entry are low. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go build some. Is that a, is there wild, wild west and lots of room for 
folks to start up small businesses, or is there really a the size and scale hurts their ability to do that? That's a hard question to answer. I would say, as a person who's developed more than forty-five apartment projects as well, mm-hmm. leading at maybe maybe fifty, and and also purchased another two or three billion dollars worth of apartments. I would say that apartments are easier to permit and build than self-storage. And it's naive for someone to think they can go in a major metropolitan area and get a zoning approval to build a storage because the zoning people want to put storage in a warehouse zone or an industrial zone, but storage needs to be in a commercial zone. But the zoning people say, no, it's a warehouse. It's got to go in a warehouse zone, but it doesn't work in a warehouse zone. So you've got that problem. And another problem is, historically, it was very ugly. Public storage didn't help with the orange doors. And people don't Mm -hmm. like the looks of it. So it it gets a bad name. And so it's been zoned out in many, many cities. So it's a challenge in the good areas. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, it is being overbuilt right now because people are getting it done. So there is opportunity. uh, And the fact that we manage and some of our larger competitors also manage takes away the management risk issue, which young entrepreneurs probably shouldn't take today in the storage business. They should let someone else manage it. Well, certainly let someone else manage it till you have enough size and scale of yourself and learn, go to school on the other guy. No, no. Even if you have, even if you have a hundred properties, you're dumb to manage it yourself. It's just too, it's just the management sophistication of the major companies is so much greater than the small entrepreneur. They can't compete and we will outperform them in so much that they're dumb to try and manage themselves. And, and talk, you know, what are the great accomplishments of your company? And then we may move beyond self-storage a bit, but uh, one of the great accomplishments of your company, I think, is that you've been recognized for some years in Glassdoor is one of the best places to work? We have, and, and you know, to be fair, we have focused a lot of energies on employee relations and employee benefits and making extra space a great place to work. I, I believe in our industry, we're the only company where the CEO and the senior officers go all around the country and meet every single manager in 39 states at what we call town hall meetings at least once every 18 months. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a big challenge. You bring all the people together in a, in a lunch, breakfast, or dinner, and you sit people around the table and you talk to them. So every single employee, single employee has a chance to personally talk to the CEO. I don't know of anybody else doing that. And so they have a feeling that we care about them. And, you know, we treat them well. And we give them good benefits. And we do pay higher than other storage companies. And I think it comes back to that we get good performance as a result. You'll definitely get different performance if, in fact, to the potential uh, renter that that experience they have at the site level with the person or maybe in the future the non-person, if that experience is going to feel good, not yucky, or great, not good. That's right. (laughs) So we try... We try and make it that way. Also, what we try and do when we hire site managers is hire people who are friendly sales type people and then train them about self-storage. Mm-hmm. 
And so we're really looking for a personality type when we hire people. Right. So, so let's continue. And, and Ken, you've mentioned it on the call a few times that in addition to being a, a huge entrepreneur in the self-storage space, you're in the apartment business. I, I know that you're in the airline business or have been in the airline business. Just list a couple or list the different businesses in which you have been involved so we get a sense of the breadth of that. Well, you've mentioned a few. Uh, I've developed apartments and continue to do so since 1988. I'm also involved in Wendy's restaurants with a partner. We own 20 stores. I am the principal owner of three airlines, two are charter airlines in the U.S. called Eastern Airlines and Swift Airways. The other is located in the country of Cyprus, where I'm a majority owner. It's a small airline flying around the Greek Isles. In 1986, I established an ice cream manufacturing company in Britain with a partner, British partner. We became the largest manufacturer of ice cream in the, in the U.K., um, I've done oil wells, owned a few oil wells, not very successful. I've been in the mining business uh-huh. with a successful business that I founded in around the early 80s and sold to a German mining company. Uh, I've been in a few high-tech companies where I was a chairman of a company in the Bay Area that made RF identification devices that became the devices we put in cars <laughs> to identify the cars when we go through tollways. Let's see. I was a co-founder of a company that made track pads, which is the device we put our fingers on the, uh, you know, the computers and now on iPhones, that whole technology was developed by a company. I was the primary funder of called Cirque. It was licensed to Apple became the underlying technology that we use today for, for the cell phone, Uh for cell phones and anything where you put your finger on it. So I've been involved in a multiplicity of interesting businesses. Right, it's always kind of fun. And so, what is it? And how how do you hold in the universe of all of those businesses that you've done? Is self storage your major? These are your minors or your extracurricular activities? How do you think about both juggling, balancing? Where where does your mind go in terms of what what you're going to do and think about and care about? Well, I'm kind of an eclectic person, and so I have a lot of things that interest me, but storage has always been the most profitable, and it's something I probably know the most about. So when you're sort of an expert in one field, you kind of like being in that field, and I've enjoyed right. storage. You know, it's been been 40 years. It sounds like, and I, it is just true, is the self-storage business is the one where you've dove down all the way. The others, you've got to be handling them at a high level. Maybe it's the conceptual level. Maybe it's the funding level. I'm just trying to think about how you both juggle and where in your brain and your heart all of these things concurrently fit. Well, I can, I can answer that really quickly. First of all, self-storage has been the most constant thing I've done in my life. But in the last few years, as chairman, I'm not as involved in all the day-to-day of extra space. So I'm about 20% of my time with extra space. But the apartment development business does take a lot of time and effort. 
Uh, we have 2,000 units under construction. I would say that I'm more than just the chairman. I'm more in the middle of the nitty gritty. Like for example, today I spent several hours with a contractor and his guys, with our guys, going over the details of every line item of budget in a new project and what the bids were. I mean, that's more than just like being a chairman, if you know what I mean. Sure is. And getting involved in the pricing of the apartments and the promotion and the management and all the details of it. So I'm, I'm very involved in that. And I own a big interest in it. So it, it, it causes me, from a valuation point of view, my interest in the apartment business is equal to my interest in the storage business in terms of total equity value. Mm-hmm. And then in the last two years, the airline has taken much more time and I've been pretty much involved in that, but wanting not to be involved, so much involved, but being kind of forced to mm-hmm. by circumstances. So if mm-hmm. I had to say, what and am do I find- doing today? It's probably almost a third storage, a third apartments and a third airlines. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> And, and do you approach, say, airlines from the perspective of the business strategist that you started your career as and these other businesses more drill down as operator and understand the – think yeah. through the details? Yes. Yeah, I'm more on the business strategy side on the airlines. But, you know, I own one airline 100%, and it's got eight, seven, six, seven aircraft flying around. So, yeah, I'm involved, but I'm not running it by any means. And I don't have the expertise to run an airline. Okay, good. And and if so, if you're, I get on a plane and you're the pilot, I should get off pretty quick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would not be my deal. <laughs> I, I, I want to think how many self-storage properties equal 1767 in terms of total cost. Well, a used, uh, about one and one. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so I'm talking about a used one because, you know, we're buying used planes that they're worth about $10 million. You can buy a storage property for about $10 million. So they're kind of one-to-one. Ken, we're, we're going to start wrapping up. Two questions I, I ask all of my guests. Uh, one is if you had advice for a real estate entrepreneur, what would that be? Question one. If you want to be in real estate, there's sort of two ways to approach it after you get a good education. Number one is to start from the ground up. And that means you start developing small things with small partners and you learn the business from starting with, in, in my case, when I was did, before I did, did my first uh, self storage, I was buying and renovating uh, fourplexes and duplexes and triplexes and houses and renting them out on the side. So I was sort of a quasi real estate entrepreneur at nights and on the weekends, but I learned a lot of things right. about financing and running things and renting things and fixing things up. And that led me to the ability to do larger transactions. So that's one way to get. The other way to approach it is to get a job with a real estate development company or a real estate company as a sort of not an intern, but sort of like as a junior executive who learns the ropes. And then after you learn the ropes and you have some experience, you can either go off on your own or possibly be a partner in the business that you're involved in. But because in order to be successful in real estate, you not only have to have expertise, but you have to be able to attract capital. And usually people who are in there, you know, just out of college can't attract capital because they don't have experience. So you have to figure out how you're going to get experience first to attract capital. And usually it's hard. It's unlike the tech world where, you, you know, a lot of guys in their 20s start up tech businesses and 
get people to go with them. In real estate, you really need an internship for a while, I think. So it's it's rare to see someone successful in starting up a real estate business until they're in their at least their early 30s. That was also my case. I really didn't get any real financial backing until I was in my early 30s after I'd had five or six years of business experience. Right. And then you described, you know, full 20 years before you really were able to form the company that you wanted to form. Not only, yeah, I was, when Extra Space really got to go to a big company, I was already 50 years old. And I was, I was behind the eight ball in that sense. I spent too many years in the, uh, what I would call the trenches, building small, a small business before I build it into a bigger business. And it's not easy. No, not at all. Well, we, we hear this story all the time. I mean, just and l- luckily on the podcast, we I've gotten to talk to people who have built successful companies. Their paths are not dissimilar from yours. Um, most of the folks I've spoken with kind of achieve it in phase two. Phase one may be, you know, getting all the background to be able to do it. And phase two is knowing what you want to do and how to do it. Right. And then having the credibility and skill set to translate that into really growth. Right. But still, in my opinion, any entrepreneur who's interested and has confidence can be successful in this field. There's still, it's a wide open field for expertise and people who are, you know, and it's in all at different aspects. But I think I've learned, if I learn one thing, specialize in one property type. Don't try and do five different property types. Uh, and I don't, to be honest, office buildings, shopping centers, warehouse buildings, you know, any of those things. And I couldn't be very successful developing because I don't have all the expertise that I have in the storage business or the apartment business. It's funny hearing the specialized in one property type from the man who owns apartment, self-storage, airline business, Wendy's, <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> yeah, but those, those are not all property types. They're, they're different businesses. I got it. To be honest, Matt, I, I really do business partly because it's fun and interesting. It's an enjoyable thing. And a lot of it, the enjoyment of it is, is the people you work with. I agree with that. Totally. Part There's two different subjects, right? Two ways to do it. One is focus to all ends and just make it happen. And the other is often follow your passion and intellectual desires. Mm-hmm. Now, one other thing I'd say about young entrepreneurs, there seem to be two kinds of entrepreneurs. And I would call one type is the guy who wants to be king. And he's the boss. And, and everybody reports to him, and he owns the whole thing, and he, you know, he is Mr. King. And that's not my style. Now, there, there are successful people who do that, and they do it for ego reasons, because they can't get along with other people, and they like to have people kowtow to them. And a lot of entrepreneurs are that way, and they can be successful, but rarely do you see them really, really being successful. The other way is to have a partner and bring in people to help you so that you uh, can have a team. And to me, that works way better. Well, it's an interesting dynamic in the real estate business. I think there's some inflection points of the growth and future of companies that have that ladder model. And then what that ladder model does when the king reaches the age of no return. And then what happens to the company? What happens to the assets? What happens to the people? Because there's not a natural next step. We bought, as you know, we buy a lot of properties. You know, we've been averaging probably a billion dollars a year for the last five years in acquisitions. And it takes a lot of self-storage properties. And many of them we purchase from guys who are single entrepreneurs. So they can do it. It's just not my style. Yep. 
What What was your other last question? Well, the other last question you answered in the way that you answered the first question, I usually ask both, what's your advice to an existing real estate entrepreneur and what's your advice for a young person getting into the business? <laughs> and you answered the question the, both for both directions, so I'm not going to complain. One of the other thing is, if you're going to be in real estate, one of the things that's great about real estate is it's physical in nature and it doesn't go away. Uh-huh. You know, whereas software and things like that, they, they, that stuff can just change so rapidly. There's no stability in it. But, you, you know, you build an apartment or a building or you buy one. It's a physical asset. And it's, it's also interesting because you can get in if you're interested in engineering. You know, there's all the physical aspects of construction and the challenges, the design. And then there's the whole financing challenge, which is really interesting for people who have financial knowledge and, and sort of a, a mathematical uh, mentality. So, and also, right. if you like, if you like traveling around and seeing things, real estate's interesting because you get to go around and see things. I mean, I've been in every major metropolitan area in this whole country, driving around looking at real estate, and I love that. It's really interesting. Right. So, so. what you're saying, as the man who's a multidisciplinary thinker, is that real estate is a great place to build a business and find one's passion and intellectual diversity in doing this one thing because this one thing requires all of those skills and all of those perspectives. It, it does. And plus you meet a lot of good people. <laughs> I have at least. Hey Ken, I'm going to let you go to the airport. Okay, thanks so much, man. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Leading Voices. If you like the episode, please rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to comment via our website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, or to me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.